0: Good afternoon. This is Michael Youth of Boeing Global International Interviews. This afternoon, we're speaking with A.J. Singh, the founder and president of Modularis. You can learn more about Modularis either at modularis.com or accelerating.net. And if you'd like an edited transcript of this interview, they can be found at alliances and midwestbusiness.com. So, AJ, people can go to your website to learn more about exactly what Modularis does. Mm -hmm. So, I'd like to hone in right away on how Modularis works internationally. So, I saw that you work with ISVs, OEMs, integrators, and so on. Who do you work with outside of the United States? (coughs) Well, some of our partners are international by, by, by nature. Um, we work a lot with uh, consulting services. Mm-hmm. TPS <coughs> is based on India. They, they have already uh, completed two very large scale projects using our technology. Mm-hmm. So um, one was for a large pharmaceutical company. there is a success story about it up on our own website. And, and, and fundamentally, uh, they leverage Modularis and our, and our, and our accelerator distance application platform to give them a competitive edge when they were putting in fixed bid, uh certain contracts. Because ultimately, you know, our core competencies are around software architecture and automation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And our technologies enable them to automate uh, up to 70% of the overall software construction process, and, and and this value can be applied internationally. I mean, I mean, for instance, for uh, both of the projects we did with uh, with Tata, uh, we we actually send uh, one of our architects out to in India to train their team mm-hmm. and um, learned quite a bit in learned quite a bit in the process of how these tier one um, outsourcing companies work.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I'm curious, was it a Native American that you sent to India, or was it someone with experience and history in India? I mean, how new was it for
1: them to go to India?
0: Well, once I went myself, since I was born there, that wasn't all yeah. that new.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, but the second time I sent my uh, director of a software architecture, Jaime Marcel. Jaime mm-hmm. is from uh, Mexico, although he was born in the U.S. originally. He actually grew up in, in Mexico.
1: Um,
0: mm-hmm. His feedback was that culturally it was very very similar,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in that it's a, a particularly conservative culture. Mm-hmm. And what he was what he was very surprised about was that um, basically uh, South Indian cuisine and Oaxacan cuisine is just about the same. They just they, they just call something a little bit different.
1: Uh, but
0: <coughs> we really haven't we really haven't run into any uh, cultural barriers from our standpoint. I mean, we've got, uh, we have a Mexican working here. We have a Frenchman working here. I mean, you know, we're we're kind of like a little, like little United Nations, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But um, the cultural differences we find in technology are really what's most interesting. Such as? Well, in India, when, when, when we were working with, TCS, and we've also worked with a couple of other companies there. But working with CCS, <clears throat> we noticed that they were very, very systematic and methodical in terms of how they estimated, planned, and executed large-scale IT projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a lot of emphasis on, 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 on as we said in CCS, uh, on defining and refining metrics such that they can bid within 10 to 20% accuracy on a million-dollar project in one day. Ooh. And just ask any U.S.-based consultancy to, to do anything close to that, and they're not going to be able to get anywhere near that. Hmm. So is that in the numbers or in the time frame? Both.
1: We both, both. I mean,
0: ultimately... These guys principally do fixed bed work,
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay. so it's up to them. That estimation from their standpoint is, is an absolutely make-or-break proposition.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they have <coughs> they have refined their their entire process down to a down to a T. That's not to say that it can't be more efficient or more effective. And that's not to say that they don't have a release valves. In yeah, I would think that they have to add well, something to work in some variability. And they do. And they do. But it, 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 it's very interesting because, culturally, they look at, say, a software development project mm-hmm. as a straightforward engineering effort. Mm-hmm. They have detailed metrics on mm-hmm. all the projects which they have done previously. All of those are aggregated together, built into estimation tools and methodologies. And that's what they use their relief valve is that labor is relatively cheap mm-hmm. and 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 uh, so of course they have a few things but but they care more about it's, it's from my perspective the culture in India uh, uh, especially with be uh, especially with these tier one outsources is that they they are absolutely focused on the metrics and they treat this as truly an engineering problem a management problem problem or challenge, Whereas here in the U.S., um, I mean, technology is often put before the needs of the business. But in India, it, it, it's exactly the opposite, and, and, and from a number of people who I've talked to, uh, it's, it's, exactly the, it, it's exactly the opposite to most parts of the world, other than the U.S. Hmm. Here very much, I mean, it's a carcass cookie for a horse, I've seen it myself many times, you know, I, uh, in a former life, in a former life, uh, uh, I was a chief archi- I was a chief software architect at a uh, at a dot com startup, and we just finished a large scale Microsoft based implementation for an online uh, B2B exchange. And it was all based on Microsoft like, technology. It was successful. It was being adopted, and um, Now, this isn't a dot-com heyday, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, New VP of engineering came in, and and I'm not kidding. He said, you know, I think we should move everything to Java, because I hear it's really hot right now. And that was justification for spending millions of dollars uh, changing the underlying technology, not for any business reasons, Mm -hmm. but just that things were... Ah, so that was probably the worst example of of this culture gone awry that 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 I had I run across. Since then, you know, cooler heads have prevailed in many cases, but there are still decidedly different cultures, uh, he, he, even here in the U.S. In terms of how I actually treated, treated, buckets buckets put, put first, either the business or the technology. Now, cultures are very different for say independent software vendors
1: mm-hmm.
0: for whom software development is a profit center
1: mm-hmm.
0: versus um, internal corporate IT mm-hmm. shops for or for whom software development is simply a cost center. Mm-hmm. So, so well, how how did that impact the culture in today's environment? Well it impacts it impacted greatly. I mean for mm-hmm. instance um, a corporate IT developer is is often has the position of being a superhero right whenever something goes wrong um, he's he he's able to lift something together and solve the problem and after doing that several times I and mean, he he achieves that kind of superhero status I know because you know I kind of grew up there also so so I' <laughs> a superstar. well a long time ago and then do <laughs> well it's, it's but but you see that. Part of the culture, yeah. and, and and you find more of that on the Microsoft side of the game yeah. than on the Java side of the game. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Well, it's it, I think it kind of comes down to the tools and technologies. I mean, Microsoft changed the whole changed the entire game when they came out with Visual Basic. Yeah. Microsoft, ever since then, has always been focused on making it easier the right software, mm-hmm. drag and drop, you know, you don't need to do that much coding, and it, their focus was that you bring in programming mm-hmm. and the productivity typically associated with it to, to anybody and, and everybody, mm-hmm. and because it was available and it was pretty cheap and you could learn it kind of on your own,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the culture that actually grew up around the Microsoft technologies was one of you know, what I call code swingers. Uh, folks who, you know, were were helping their organizations solve problems. They were doing it largely individually. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would see a challenge. They would see some bit of inefficiency. And they would think, you know what? I know, I know how to write a little application that will fix that up. Mm-hmm. And that's how things get started. And, I mean... So it's kind of like wild west gun centers. It is. It is. I mean, and, and again, I went through all that too. I mean, I went through all of those stages. But that that kind of culture still largely pervades large parts of 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 IT here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, when you, when you start tackling larger and larger projects, however. Okay, that's when things changed quite a bit. And so that's why, you know, in, in, in internal corporate IT departments, you have, more, you have smaller teams, you have more individually developed solutions, simply because a business had a challenge, uh, a techie raised his uh, hand, said, you know what, I think I can do that. Then management said, okay, go do it. They didn't care about anything else. Mm-hmm. Right? And a, certain, a need for that, that's certainly valuable. But when you change gears here and you look at independent software vendors, these are companies who need to build commercial-grade software that, that needs to be used beyond their own walls, that needs to be distributed nationally and certainly internationally. It needs to be And it needs to be scalable. Correct. And it needs to be packaged. There needs to be a clear upgrade path for all of their customers. Right. You need to have longevity, because you, can't, you You actually can't afford to be re-engineering it every two or three years. It simply costs too much money. So the question is, how do you, how do you achieve that? And, and, and you know, the, that's the space where we really play, because we understand what it takes to like be an IC, We're an I S C ourselves. Most of, our, most of our clients are also ISVs. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you mm-hmm. as, as as software projects increase in scale and in complexity, and as they become more and more vital to the fundamental success of the business, meaning kind of nine mm-hmm.
1: uh
0: the code-slinging mentality simply doesn't cut it. And it's, it's, it's interesting because I spent couple years living and working in Germany. Mm-hmm. I was like, on Siemens and part of what you explain about the Indian approach that leads to putting together proposals and bits yes. and so on is eerily German to me, just because, you know, highly engineered, very structured and so on.
1: Yes.
0: And In a lot of ways that's very German. And it's kind of interesting to, me to tell that that parallel was developed in India. It uh-huh. has. I mean, and, 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 and it, it's really kind of a... It's a pretty simple idea. The needs of the business come before the needs of the technologists or the wants or desires of the technologists because the technologists always want to be latest, greatest, cutting-edge, all of this type of thing. And, and, you know, oftentimes they get their way without enough thought being put into the business impact of making each of those decisions. So one of the greatest compliments I was ever paid was by uh, Rich Reinertson, the CEO of Feed Management Systems, one of our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his board members asked why he had uh, invested in Modularis and why he had, you know, uh, uh, bought into our platform and our approach. And Rich sums it up pretty simply. He said, well, as Modularis, it's business first and technology second, which to me is kind of, duh, you
1: know. <laughs> you know Mm-hmm.
0: But um, the other kind of angle in this is is what I see is a difference between software development and software engineering. Okay. Those two are often used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trained as a mechanical engineer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, most... Software developers were trained as computer scientists. Right. So, if you look back at, at, at just the thought process that an engineer goes through, say an engineer is tasked with a building a new device, it could be a cell phone or it could be a piece of software. First thing is the first thing he needs to know is okay, what are my parameters? What's my budget? How how much does it need to weigh? What are the features that it has to have? Right. Once you have those overall parameters, you go through a design phase and you try out different designs and, and you try to come up with you you try to come up with a design which is optimized or strikes the right balance between features, functions, costs. Uh, there is a concept in Mechanical Engineering called BSM, um, D- Design for Manufacturability. So when you're designing something, you know, it's a device with a cover, See, yeah. do you want to put 32 screws in it to hold it together or do you just want to have four? The question is, well, you know, four is going to be better because it'll be cheaper, it'll be easier to manufacture, right? The same type of thought process can be applied to software. Right. But the idea is, again, really novel idea to design something before you build it.
1: So in other words, how, de-
0: how is a developer different from the engineer in a software sense? A developer, is, and, and I, I see this culture changing slowly, right? But a developer is much more, a developer wants to jump immediately, in, in, in many cases, I'm not going to say everybody, right? But, it, but but too often, a developer wants to jump from a whiteboard straight straight to the keyboard. So if the manager draws out a problem on a whiteboard, and, and developer gets up there, maybe he does a little sketch or something like that, then he says, you know what, I know how to do this, I'm going to go do it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then he cranks out a bunch of code.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he tries it. And it, it might work in some it might work in some cases and not and not work in others. And again, there is not enough emphasis put on designing something thoroughly and thinking it through and make sure that the design is going to meet the needs of the business prior to actually writing a single line of code. And that, that, that's not to say that, that, you know, agile development processes don't work because they do and they do very well. But that's also I think a fundamental difference between the culture which you described in Germany, you know, in my experience, in India. This is a standard engineering process. There's another side to it, too. And in India, I think it's true somewhat, and, and somewhat in Germany as well, I think those cultures are lauded for their consistency, growth, and so on, However, they're not as well respected for their creativity. For their innovation. For their innovation. Yes. So where does that come together with this to create better solutions? In other words, will we never see anything revolutionary? Is it always going to be incrementally evolutionary? Well, I think that's a question of perspective. For example, look at the most purportedly revolutionary product to hit, uh, to hit the market in the past several years. Yeah, that's right I mean, that's groundbreaking, right?
1: Okay.
0: Apple's made a, Apple has made a name for itself in, in, in really having every aspect of design and implementation of the hardware and software, everything be driven by the end user experience they want their customers to, to have, which is makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Now, I used to work at Motorola. I, I still have many friends who are still there. They have most of the layoffs, although some of my family haven't. But um, the interesting thing is that if, if you look at the core technologies, mm-hmm. the form factor, the touch screen, the haptic feedback, the user interface, these are all bits and pieces which a Motorola already has. They, they have they had they had the technology the actual pieces. what they did not have is the, is the vision or the drive or the will to put it together in such a way so it, so in that sense is the iPhone revolutionary or evolutionary I think it can be argued both ways and I've heard stories where an iPhone or or something very similar to the iPhone, was developed in China to the Chinese market and was never brought to market and simply tables for whatever reason. I don't know, but, I mean, if things like that happen, it's a shame for the marketplace that they don't come to market here. Oh, but, 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 you see, this is nothing I new. Mean, this happened, well, it, this yeah. happened in Xerox Park with a <laughs> mouse. I worked for Xerox, yeah, right. and they were developing That's that. That's right. And, and then, and watch, only had a PC <laughs> in our secret lab. Well, I mean, you know, so if anyone can have an idea, the question is, can you meet somebody with a breadth of vision and sufficient discipline to refine it, to get it to market, and at the end of the day, to make money off
1: of it? So that's
0: how everything is measured. And, and again, you know, I think one thing which is kind of, um, well, I like to think separates us from our competition is is really how we're measured. How we measure ourselves and how our clients measure us. And it's it's, it's also very different from how Microsoft, say, measures itself. We measure ourselves and and our our clients measure us on how much net business value we can deliver to them through our products, through our services, through our advisory capabilities. How much net business value top-line and bottom-line growth for our clients. Okay. Okay. I mean, like, say, for example, feed management systems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When FMS engaged with us, uh, they had a set of legacy technologies which were limiting them to just the feed manufacturing vertical and just in North America. Okay. Um, and excuse me, sure. how or why was their technology limiting them
1: in that, that well, way?
0: A couple of reasons. One, they had grown for act- they had grown for acquisition, so they had uh, so they had so they had acquired um, certain products which were built in older languages for and say which weren't internationalized. Their their uh, uh, one of their legacy systems, quote unquote legacy systems, actually built inside of Microsoft Great Plains. Great Plains was limited to North America. Mm-hmm. So they could not expand it into China. They could not expand it into Brazil. Those markets were closed
1: for yeah,
0: the system. Well, no, no. Uh, they actually leveraged Great planes as a development platform, not just for the economy. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was a custom manufacturing solution.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they, they, they wanted to be rid of those limitations. So one, they wanted to move into other decisions. They wanted to be able to selling into other geographic regions. Okay, so obviously, obviously huge, huge, huge agricultural markets in China, in Russia, and in and, and in Brazil, for instance. Right. Other thing that they want to do is you know that they already pretty much conquered the feed manufacturing market. They captured the over seventy percent market share. So uh, they were kept in terms of their overall growth potential.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the but their core capabilities their core capabilities could be readily applied to other parallel vertical markets, such as flour manufacturing, such as ethanol manufacturing. However, their, their existing technology set, their existing product suite, uh, was very specific to feed manufacturing. So again, they were limited just to that one market.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So when we engaged with them, again, almost two years ago now, they actually laid out a two-year technology roadmap to, to actually free them from those limitations, and, and uh, they just released uh, 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 the first version of their new platform, mm-hmm. which allows them to not only go into new ge- geographical markets in the feed industry, but also license a platform to partners who can then take it into other vertical markets, too.
1: <laughs>
0: and they're already doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: so, you yeah. know, um, that's the other kind of international impact with that we've had on our clients. Gotcha. Well, now, and, and we talk about Microsoft a bit. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're heavily involved with Net, and so on. Yes. But I also know that as a platform, there are others out there in other parts of the world all looking at them. So Absolutely. So, for example, how, you know, how does that net face off against Linux, which is, is getting more popular in other parts of the world? Without a doubt, it certainly is. I mean, there are Linux itself is just the operating system, mm-hmm. but I mean, it it it's what's at the heart of is what's at the heart of
1: uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At,
0: and, and, Right. And, and, right. And, and oftentimes, you know, the development camp can be divided into two camps: the so Microsoft camp and the anti-Microsoft camp. Right? Mm-hmm. Ant- and the quote-unquote Ant- and Microsoft camp is really all about open source, open source servers, open source development technologies, etc., etc.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they have their place, and they are certainly providing good competition and a good impetus to keep Microsoft innovating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so basically, the, the two main camps now are Java,
1: right,
0: and ANSI, and then there is .NET. Mm-hmm. The, from a technology perspective .NET yeah. and, and Microsoft's development tools are by far vastly superior to that in other technologies. I mean, you would. You would, but, but um, again, Microsoft has made it easy to write software. They've been doing that for over 10 years, starting with starting with DB and now and now and now into .NET, and um, the way that they're able to compete is fundamentally, if you think about it, Microsoft has a product, right? They have they have Windows, they have SQL Server, they have their entire platform, they have .NET, they have Visual Studio. These are commercial products. You can, uh, uh, if if anything goes wrong, they can provide support for all of those products, and they're also constantly working on, on, on trying to make them work better together. Obviously, to some more licenses, right? Because that's that's how they measure themselves. Which, and uh, separate conversation we can have about that. <laughs> but um, uh, on the open source side. Fine. Uh, you built something in in any in any open source product, whether it be Ruby on Rails, which is a really really neat tool, right? Or 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 Java or or uh, Linux, and something goes wrong. Where do you go for support? Well, you can buy support from different companies like Red Hat, and, and you and you can pay for consultants who can maybe give you some of the support, but. But the interesting the interesting competition here is Microsoft, which is just, just, just coming from a product-centric view, right? Mm-hmm. And the open source, which is coming from a standard-centric view.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what's proven itself again and again is when you put an open source standard, which, by the way, nobody fully implements any of these standards. Everyone has their own little flavors of it.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it is very it is very, very fluid. when when you simply do a risk assessment, you know, what's gonna win? A actual product which, which 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 accomplishes a concrete objective or a standard to which you need to comply and buy and which and which is supported by an open source community of developers who will help you on their own time?
1: I mean, look, I
0: uh, selling my software pays my mortgage, so uh, I'm not a huge proponent of open source for everything. I I think it has its place. I think it's, uh I think it can provide significant value, and it's a and yes, it's a viable option, but it's one which needs to be looked at um, over the whole over the life cycle of the entire solution. Not to say, hey, you know, I got to pay. I got to pay a hundred bucks for a Microsoft product. So I can get this for free. Uh, it's not really, not really free when when you look at the whole thing. Well, and in some ways, you know, the Microsoft Office products have parallels, open source, and so on. Yeah. And that's why Microsoft is still on so many desktops. You know, the Internet Explorer browser, and it opposed Firefox, Office, yeah. sure. uh, Chrome, so on, so. On. so some
1: of those same
0: things cross over. Well, I, 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 I tell you something very, very interesting that I learned at this Mix09 conference. Microsoft has um, learned a lot because they've had their hat handed to them in, in certain areas of web development. PHP has basically taken off quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, they haven't found that. So their next big push is a technology called Silverlight. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. have heard of it, but don't know about it. Silverlight is basically a very, very trimmed down version of .NET. Okay? Mm-hmm. It competes most directly with Flash. Mm-hmm. And it's at the center of their strategy to actually provide a unified user experience mm-hmm. for applications built in .NET. That are either installed on a desktop, mm-hmm. or inside of a browser, or eventually on a mobile device. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Microsoft hired uh, a, a couple hundred Linux programmers to actually create a Silverlight plugin for the Macintosh Safari browser. So, so you can get .NET. And so you can write a .NET application one time, and it'll work in Safari. It'll work in Linux. And it'll work on and will work on Windows. And rumor has it they are going to be porting this over to the iPhone. So okay. that yeah. that's a bit of a twist uh, on, 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 on what Microsoft used to be doing. And I think it's a very very smart strategy. I mean, it's a lot more collaborative, and you know, it's not as much sticking to their own proprietary technology as much as being integrating with other people. Sure. Correct. Which
1: yeah. I think I probably steps in the right direction.
0: Um, now, I also saw that you work with government, yes. and I'm also curious: Have you worked with any foreign governments, or are they all still pretty much domestic? Mm-hmm. Right now, right now, it's domestic. Mm-hmm. However, okay. there are significant opportunities uh, overseas for our public safety offerings.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: have a, a a case management system mm-hmm. which we developed, which is now running statewide in uh, Pennsylvania. The Office of the Attorney General is actually using it to track criminal investigations across the state.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we built the system in such a way that it can be internationalized fairly readily. It can be customized easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, just about all of our just about all of our customers are mm-hmm. are, are are using our accelerated Business Application Platform to build localized international applications.
1: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: one of our clients. Um, well, feed management systems, I think, is already targeting six different countries. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so the so the capability of localizing the whole application so it can easily be deployed. That that that's actually baked into our own platform, yeah. but it's designed to build international applications. In the public safety area, uh, we also collaborated with KCI Communications to actually build a a um, in car digital video recording system.
1: And I actually have it in
0: the office and I can show it to you if you want to take a look at it. But mm-hmm. but but, yeah. but picture this. You you have one or two cameras mounted inside of a vehicle, mm-hmm. along with a radar unit, along with a GPS unit, integrated with the light light and sirens and brakes and everything else. And you have an in-car uh, in car PC basically, right right now running Windows XP. With a solid with a solid state drive and with Wi-Fi access. So well, are these probably tablet size? I assume. Or no, no, I I should have a unit. No, not even laptop size. It actually fits in a 1.5 din chassis, which can be mounted right inside of the radio stack inside of inside of any of these police cars. So very so very compact unit. It can interface with it can interface with 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 a touchscreen. We have a touch enabled user interface which allows an officer to make a recording, that you look for archive recordings, that you control the overall system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And these officers are thinking in Antioch, Alaska, and Wisconsin, and Texas and also in Illinois. And the market in that area is heating up quite a bit. And and, and that's probably one application which has which probably has the biggest immediate potential. For sale overseas because to uh, localize it is relatively trivial.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, my uh, my um, chairman Jerry R. Mitchell uh, actually does a lot of work with China, so we are talking about taking it over there. Uh, K. C. Communications and Kozlowski has relationships in Korea. Uh, that's that's ultimately where the units are going to be manufactured,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, so. Well, are the phone, cool. Now, I mean, if we're talking about in-car things for law enforcement, I would think that there's a fair amount of variability in the radar they use, maybe some of the GPS systems, yes. the emergency alert system. Yes. How can you adapt to all those differences in different places? I just cannot even speak of the different levels of technology mm-hmm. in place throughout the world. I am so glad you asked that question. Because the answer is our software. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the name of our company is Modularis, modular, modular, Information Systems. That's part and parcel of how we build uh, how we build all applications built with our platform. So, for instance, the the NCAR, uh the NCAR DVR application is completely modular. In that, um, suppose we need to interface with a new radar system. Okay as long as, as long as as long as it has a defined communication protocol okay. we basically need to write one one interface plugin okay, okay. so that's one small bit of code that knows how to talk to it and then we build one virtual uh, UI widget which where it actually displays all of the information from that device
1: mm-hmm
0: none of this has to touch or impact the core software application. So, as new devices come up, we have basically made the software hardware independent and even protocols independent that can give KPI as much flexibility ability as is possible in integrating different devices. The other thing is you can even plug in different kinds of cameras. And this is, again, where... Because this is built on the Microsoft platform using a technology called Direct Show,
1: mm-hmm. it
0: basically provides a layer of abstraction. Mm-hmm. So that, so that the, just as you can go buy a webcam, right, from Logitech or Microsoft or anybody else, plug it, in, plug it into your PC and largely know that it's going to work, right? Mm-hmm. We use that same type of technology in building this software. So as the cameras change, as the hardware changes, as as the radar changes, or as needs arise in a particular market, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we can very quickly adapt and and, and, and get get the product out there. And and you already
1: spoke to
0: localization and so on. Is there anything special about modular solutions that allows you to be so flexible in internationalization, localization. It sounds like that's a strength. I'm just wondering why. It is a strength. It, it is a strength. And, and localization, I see in the same category as maintainability. Okay. And, and what is that? I mean, uh, in, in order to have a piece of software have a lifespan that is greater than, you know, the, the average, you know what the average lifespan is for software right? Eight, 18 months. Mm-hmm. He, right. He, he, he therefore, it's rewritten. Mm-hmm. It, Incidentally, that's also the average lifespan. Putting the Gartner article I read a while ago for a CIL. <laughs> so I, I
1: don't
0: either. know how
1: strongly those
0: are correlated. I, I, I I'm not I'm not sure, but I believe and, and and I believe very strongly that if sufficient care is taken in architecting, mm-hmm. designing and implementing a software application on, you know, one platform or another. Obviously, I prefer Microsoft, but somebody could apply the same principles and be be, be successful on the Java platform, but if somebody takes enough care in doing that, you can have an application which is a lifespan of over 10 years. That sounds pretty long. It is, but... The engine, here's the key, uh, and this is something which I don't think enough software developers or software engineers understand. Maybe they maybe they pay lip service to it, but I found only, only the guys with a good chunk of gray hair uh, really understand this. There are some core fundamental principles of Good software architecture, good programming practices that um, that, are, that have been around for 30 years and will be around for the next 30. So, our good architecture doesn't change from time to time. Our architecture, our you know, our, our fundamental logical architecture is is same today as it was 10 years ago. However, the implementation has been tweaked. It's now built for the latest version of .NET, etc., etc. right? So one then of the has been in your mind. Sure. What
1: is the greatest
0: innovation in software development in the last 10, 20 years? I mean, you talk about the iPhone being one of the greatest technology innovation. Is there anything about how they developed the software for the iPhone? It's, it's revolutionary or...? Well... The approach that Apple has taken to the design of both their hardware and their software is something which it's something now which is uh, catching fire. This, this, this whole idea of actually building user experience centric applications. <laughs> but again, you if you think about it it's a novel idea, right? But but the funny thing is that he, I I don't know. I mean, I believe in I believe a lot in momentum. I mean, people people have been doing things the way that they've been doing them for a long time. And you ask them, "Why are you doing it this way?" And oh, it's just the way that I've always done it. And I think if you if you simply look if you if you simply look at it as 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 a software development process, mm-hmm. right. How has that evolved? I mean, how has that evolved over time? It's evolved quite a bit,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: Because back in the mainframe days, when uh, when um, you had you know less memory and CPU than your cell phone now to actually deal with, and you had to build an entire accounting system, um, you didn't just come up with a, with a with a sketch on a chalkboard and then jump at a key punch machine and start cranking out punch cards, <laughs> right? That's jumping on the way back machine. Yeah, well, I mean, but if, but if you think about it, that analogy um, is true for a lot of software development. in that you get an idea, you just jump on the code and try to hammer it out. And the, the complete antithesis of this is what's called the waterfall approach, right, where you get this huge project, whatever it is. First, before you do anything, you need to have all of the requirements perfectly detailed. Mm -hmm. Then you need to have all of the use cases and all of the user screens perfectly laid out, exactly as as they need to be. And you do all the engineering process, right? And only when all of that's finished, you actually start building stuff out. Now, that has advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that you're designing something prior to actually doing it, right? Good idea. A disadvantage is that the process is often so long and so inflexible that by the time that you've implemented something, the need has changed. How do you, how do you manage that? So that's evolved into now iterative development, right? Uh, one useless example of it is exchange programming, which I don't believe works at all, which XP, exchange programming has, has an idea okay, you know what? Have a developer come up with a requirements document and then just go straight to code. Forget the design. You know, just get the requirements and then go. How can you build an app that's going to last for ten years? Doing that, you can't. So now, um, it, and, and, and I'm getting back into the reason, you know, because of Apple. But now, with with Scrum and with uh, more more middle-of-the-road iterative development where, say, you actually go through short cycles of analysis, design, implementation, testing, and then you iterate. You know, maybe you do that on a two-week basis or on a four-week basis. That, we found, works very, very effectively. And the piece that now Apple has driven the rest of the industry actually adopt is this entire user-centric approach. And um, Again, back at this Microsoft Mix conference, the entire event was about user experience. The <laughs> entire event was about user experience. And, and I can give it to you. There's no way in hell Microsoft would have sponsored that event or, or would have taken this leap if it weren't for Apple driving them to it. And, and it's good for the industry, and I think it's very good for Microsoft. And all I've got to say is, you know, never count Microsoft out of anything. Well, uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting, though, because, I mean, when I think about the technology Titan over the last 30, 40, 50 years, IBM is kind of the Bahamas. They've gone through some iterations themselves, but they've survived and gone from a hardware to a services company in a right. way. But I think, in terms of big guys, IBM kind of transferred into Microsoft. In some ways, Microsoft is transferred into Google as the huge Internet company. And I'm kind of surprised you haven't mentioned Google in confronting Microsoft because I think they're a, a big player. Google is a big player, but they are, they are, they are not nearly as big of a player on um, software development. Okay. Okay.
1: And, and, again,
0: that's kind of where my focus is actually is Um But Google, Amazon, and Microsoft now are the three big players in cloud computing. Well, that, right, I know Google's getting more involved in mobile too. With Android, absolutely, and 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 it, the iPhone and Android left Microsoft with their Microsoft Mobile OS, with their short-lived. I mean, it, I mean, it, so they're they're now playing they're now playing catch-up, but uh, you know. Is your question, where is Microsoft in a see most competition? Or I well, you? I guess we can forward that at this point. I guess to get back to international, stuff. Sure. Um, as a Microsoft allied partner, mm-hmm. how does working together with Microsoft help you
1: internationally? Well,
0: partners, Microsoft partners can engage with Microsoft in a couple of different ways. Uh, some of the more naive partners they expect simply because of the partnership they will, you know, they're, they they have a handout and they're waiting for Microsoft to pass and leave and other opportunities. And I've, I've seen this happen, and it's that's not how it works. Um For for us, it was it was been very very effective. Actually, working with 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 Microsoft dte Development, fast on Evangelization. Mm-hmm. There are architect evangelists, right, basically software architects who have who have been around the block, also evangelists for the Microsoft platform. And many of these guys came from the outside; they came from IBM, they actually came from the Java side, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have a, 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 a unique perspective. And as far as I know, they are the only organization within Microsoft which is not directly measured on how many licenses they end up
1: selling. (laughs) I, 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 as
0: far as I know, now, one thing you can always ask a a Microsoft employee is how they're measured Mm -hmm. and they will, they they always know Mm -hmm. and 99% of the time it's, at the end of the day, it's on how many licenses
1: Mm
0: -hmm. they sell. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, Not the DTES. The, 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 the architect evangelists who are part of the development platform evangelization group uh, are stationed all around the world. Uh, connected with ones. I'm actually talking with one out of Atlanta, one out of Denver, one out of San Jose. They also have counterparts around the world in different in, in different regions and different countries, and they are all about promoting the Microsoft platform and uh, driving value to to the end customer to their partners through use of Microsoft technology. So um, the best way for us to leverage our Microsoft relationships to actually penetrate further overseas, I believe, is through the DTE organization. You know, you can also tap into various programs from uh, Microsoft Marketing uh, where um, they have some programs where they can assist you with creating marketing collateral and getting your name out there more. But again, you know that like life, life with anything else, uh, you will only get out of the relationship what you put into it. Sure. And um, we're working hard to build good relationships with 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 the BTE guys around the globe. And and ultimately, you know. My feeling has always been every kind of business and engagement we have been a part of, either when we're working directly with with a client or working through a partner, working through Microsoft. At the end of the day, if you can deliver significant value to the end user of whatever solution you actually build, if you can solve their business problem, the the rest of the value chain takes care of itself. I guess just to finish up, a couple um, personal questions. Um, you mentioned you were born in India. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what your language capabilities are. I mean, how has that experience helped you in doing international business here? Well, my being from India probably should have helped me more than it has. <laughs> uh, there are I, a lot more Indians here in
1: the United States you There too. There
0: are. There, 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 there are. Uh, I, I, I came here when I was six years old. Uh, could already speak English. My second grade teacher told me that I spoke better English than most of the school of born years. But I forgot how to speak Hindi in six, six months. So, so now I speak English, and I'm uh, getting Deutsch. And they and a It's, it's, um, so no, I don't know. I mean, do you I feel that that helped or hurt you much at all? I think because, because of my upbringing, and because I, I was trans, 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 transplanted between different cultures, I think that's made. I think that's made me more sensitive to cultural issues with people who I deal with overseas, or with immigrants who I deal with here. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I think it's also helped me focus more in on on, on on what makes us all the same, rather than what separates us. And but the one thing that I, the one thing that I do know. Is that it, regardless of the language, regardless of the culture, uh, you just need to remember to show respect. As long as you do that, most other things work themselves out. Last question: Anything else that's important for readers or listeners to know about modular, about your approach to international projects, customers, and so on? Have so we missed anything? Well, um, I'm not sure we have. I mean, I mean, I think as kind of a final point, um, at the end at the end of the day, we're we're interested in working with partners or clients who are who have some challenges Problems. We're not interested in smaller issues, smaller applications. We, we really want to take on some of the some of the heavier stuff, and that's that. That that's kind of where we've carved a name for ourselves. And and, and, and ultimately, uh, we understand that we're not done with the solution until our client has seen tangible tangible results, whether it's from increased revenue, decreased decrease cost, increased customer satisfaction. Whatever the whatever the actual metric is, we're not done when we ship some software. And I and I think that's something that that's that's an attitude and an approach that I wish for more software companies because we've kind of we we've kind of gotten a bad name. Not we much American, American software. We meaning American software developers, American software companies have kind of gotten a bad name in that we ship. We ship a product, and we think that we're done. And, uh, you know, we put technology before, before the business well, it, it really be.
1: Last point, and I
0: mean, I do think we still have a few solutions looking for problems these days. And part of what I think you're alluding to is just some very fundamental different business values and business to business processes. And, I mean, I think here in America, we're kind of a deal-maker culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so once we've made the sale, we move on. But for a lot of the rest of the world, it's about the relationship. And the relationship doesn't end right after the sale is made.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, I think that's part of the difference you're alluding to. It is. And, and, and if it's, part, if it's, certainly, if it's certainly part of you know my own personal growth. I mean, like I said, I was... I was the coach one year. I was the <laughs> superhero hero who would always raise his hand in a staff meeting and regret it later. You know what I mean? But
1: I, I've been at this
0: now for... I've been at this now for 10 years. And if there's any one thing that I've learned, uh, business is all about building personal relationships, And personal relationships are all about trust. And... Uh, Again, I'm surprised at how many people just lose sight of those very, very simple, basic issues. And Mm I can hear. Well, AJ,
1: Thanks.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.